0: What I want to talk about for just a few minutes, maybe 20, 30 minutes, whatever. We'll see how I get carried away. Um, is courage to open your mouth and say things that you've learned about Jesus to people who don't know those things. Just, you, you, most of you are single here and there is a special calling on this season of your life could extend till you die. I don't know. Some of you are called to be Amy Carmichael types or Apostle Paul types and others will be married, but in this unique season, you have a unique moment to speak to a certain group of people that only you can. They won't listen to me as well. I don't cross their paths, but you cross their paths at work and in the neighborhoods, gatherings like this, where a special opportunity will be there for you to say things that nobody else can say, and I just want you to be more bold. That's all. So let me give you I think I thought of four or five reasons why courage in our day for you may be harder than at certain other times in history. Let me give you four or five reasons that I jotted down this afternoon of why courage or boldness to open your mouth and say truths about Jesus is going to be hard. Number one, just like I said this morning, I thought of this just because of this morning's message, wherever authority encounters a sinful heart the sinful heart generally reacts negatively it doesn't say oh good i'm glad there's an authority telling me what i should think or believe it it gets gets its back up well jesus is the biggest authority in the universe there is no higher authority than jesus and now you are presuming to be his spokesman his representative Everybody in the world has a sinful heart. So, it is in the DNA of the relationship. There's gonna be some bristling at this. And nobody likes to be bristled at. We would just as soon talk to somebody who agrees with us and not deal with the conflict. And so, Right off the bat, the call for courage is there just in the nature of the one you represent. I mean, Jesus is also the most loving and most compassionate and most understanding and most beautiful and most glorious person, but he's also totally authoritative. And this is not a day when people like very much to be confronted with that kind of thing. So reason number one, sinful heart meets authority, Jesus, sparks fly, We don't like to make sparks. Let's go the other way. So I would like to help you overcome that, stay in that situation, and go all the way through. Number two, reason number two. We are in a day, you know this, all kinds of words are used for it, of great uh, relativism, pluralism, postmodernism. It's a day when truth is not esteemed as something that's there, objective, outside of us, to which we all strive and conform to, and everybody must see it and agree on it ultimately or perish. That's not the way most people think today. Truth is something you feel, something that's good for you. It's not out there. It's in here. And therefore, what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. I brought along... uh, Maybe I'll show it to you in a minute. This this article I lifted up in the paper uh, this morning in the in the message relates to this. But the illustration that's most emotionally powerful to me is about uh, 1999. You may remember this. Uh, Jews for Jesus, which is a very controversial group. I love them. Um, came to town on their program called BYG Big. God, And what does it stand for? Behold your God. B-Y-G. Behold your God. And they were going to all the cities in the world that had over a million Jewish people and doing major on the street engaging evangelistic efforts to talk to Jewish people about Jesus. That's what they do. They're in your face, on the ground. Hi, I'm Jews for Jesus. And they tell about Jesus. And, and it's very tense and controversial. Well... Of course, the liberal media cannot stand Jews for Jesus. And uh, Herbert Heschel wrote this. I wrote down a bunch of these quotes back in 99. He was published in the Minneapolis Tribune as saying Christians must abandon the idea that Jews must be converted. This is one of the greatest scandals in history. So there, there you have a, a strong, published. Jewish rabbi saying it is an absolute scandal for Christians to presume that Jewish people need to be converted or saved or made followers of Jesus. So there you are immediately saying, wow, I'm going to walk into that setting and proclaim Christ and have a strong, articulate Jewish rabbi get in my face and say, that's a scandal what you're doing. John Piper is teaching a scandalous thing to you. You shouldn't do that. So I wrote a response to this in the newspaper. And lo and behold, first time ever, they published it. And all it was was a series of quotations of Scripture, including texts like, He who does not have the Son does not have life. In other words, all Jewish people are lost if they don't believe in Jesus. They actually published that in the paper. Well, in response... Twelve pastors downtown got together and wrote another thing that was published. And let me read you what they said. They said, and they know who they were talking to. They didn't name me, but there was. They said, arrogant is the right word to describe any attempts at proselytizing, in this case, the effort of Christians to win over their Jewish brothers and sisters. Close quote. So reason number two, why you need courage is because in a day of relativism, it is considered simply scandalous to present your truth as something somebody else should agree with. And that's what we're about. I have no If, if that is not true, I'm just going to get another job. I'm wasting my time if in fact Jesus Christ is not necessary for salvation. He is necessary, and we need to say it. And say it lovingly and say it courageously. So that's reason number two. Reason number three is that today there is amazing fear in the broader culture of right-wing people. Right-wing religious people. Now, I don't like the term right-wing. I'd rather not be associated with a kind of brittle... Republican, right-wing thinking. But if anybody took the temperature of what I believe and what I do, they'd put me in that category in a minute. Well, what are people saying about them? I wrote down maybe four or five book titles that are being written about people like us, only I'm going to try to distance myself somewhat. Things Here's one from Michael Lerner. The Left Hand of God. Taking back our country from the right wing. Get all these at Amazon. They're all written in the last few years. Next one. Kingdom coming. The rise of Christian nationalism. This is what's feared. Almost all the media, all the leftward-leaning or liberal believers think people like you want to take over the world. And make everybody believe like you or throw them in jail. That's really what they believe. They don't make many distinctions between the Taliban and believers, Christians. That's what is felt about people like me. If he had more influence, he'd throw us all in jail if we were atheists. I'll try to show why that's not true in a minute, but that's what they think. Number three, fear of... Let's see. Where is it? Why the Christian right is wrong by Robert Robin Myers. Fourth one. The kingdom coming. How the religious right distorts the uh, the faith and threatens. uh, I didn't write the next word. Threatens America. There it is. Distorts the faith and threatens America. And one last one, blasphemy colon. How the religious right is hijacking the Declaration of Independence. So there's five books written by people who look at the. Large mega churches of the Twin Cities, say, or the big 30,000-member church in Houston, and they tremble at these crazy people who want to take over the world and make everybody believe the way they believe. Now, let me try to ask this question. This this is a little sermon within a sermon. It's like a two-minute mini-sermon on how we should respond to people like that. Most people who are not religious have only one category for tolerance and peace and how to get along in diversity. And the category is relativism. In other words, if, if I don't believe that your truth is as good as my truth, I will use force to make you agree with me if I can. Power will hold sway. That, so in their mind, the only way to have a democracy is to have relativism. So people like us who say this book is true, we believe we know the truth, we're going out the country telling people believe this or you perish, they think we're just Taliban, we're just jihadists, we're, we're just like the people who threw the jets, flew the jets into the tower. There's no distinction because it's truth that, claiming truth that, that flew those jets into those towers. The only people, the only way to keep people from Killing others is to say respect for all views, equal respect for all views. Now, I think that's dead wrong. Not only do I think that will not preserve tolerance, because in a culture where relativism holds sway and there is no truth, Once a person gets power, you've got no moral sanction to call them to account. Because they're going to say, look, I've got the power. There is no right and wrong. I'll do with it as I please, thank you. And therefore, you have totalitarianism. That will come eventually. So my answer to how do we, believers that Jesus is the only way, stand for tolerance In other words, defend the right of an atheist to say what he has to say right here, right here, right now, after I come to this microphone, say what he wants to say without going to jail. My answer to that is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, taught me to treat people that way. He said, I am the only way, but you can't coerce anybody to believe this. You can't make disciples with a gun, or a bomb, or a whip, or a prison. And then he said this amazing thing in John 18. Uh, Pilate said, so you are a king then. And he said, if my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would be fighting. My kingdom is not of this world. Now that to me is a huge text for why I as a believer in the king who will one day rule over the whole world and anybody who has not bowed the knee to him will perish. Nevertheless, I will not force his kingdom. Now, by gun, by bomb, by sword, by prison, I will argue, I will command, and I will fight for the right of others to do the same. You know, You don't know your Baptist history, probably. Most of you probably didn't grow up in Baptist churches. But one of the things Baptists have done well for about 400 years is defend the rights of all people to speak because it's Baptists who were slapped in jail in Massachusetts. I mean, they came over here for religious freedom, and lo and behold, the Puritans who had come for religious freedom turned out to do England on New England. And they were throwing Roger Williams and the others in jail because they weren't bowing to the appropriate... Thing. Now, I love the Puritans, but they got that wrong big time. So I'm really kind of happy historically to stand for the tradition of the Baptists who had a lot of input into the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights to say we will establish no religion and we will favor no religion, meaning we will not structurally make any demands upon a person to belong to any religion. We won't tax anybody if they don't belong to our religion. Things like that. So, that's, that was longer than two minutes. Close that little mini-sermon. That was my answer to the people who are writing all these books about how the right wing, if they got control, would really throw all the unbelievers in jail and turn this into a theocracy. That's the fear code word is that America's going to become a theocracy if the George Bush types get the upper hand. And here's a catch. There are people like that. There are right wing people like that. Theonomists. Who would, in fact, legislate Christianity. Well... I wouldn't. And so I would be happy to go to the mat with any atheist or relativist who, who would argue the only way to preserve tolerance and democracy is through relativism. I would come back and say, no, 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 no. That will not work in the long run. I think Jesus is the best ground to defend those who don't believe in Jesus. My fourth reason for why um, courage is going to be necessary is that atheism is becoming increasingly aggressive. That's why I was going to pull out this article again um, about the guy who wrote the book about parenting children without religion. On the back, one of the questions the interviewer asked him in the paper on Saturday was, are you surprised at the sudden popularity of atheist and agnostic books? I don't know if you've been listening or if you've noticed. You probably will have a bell ring if I say names like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens. These are mega atheists writing in your face books that millions of people are reading. If you go home tonight, click on Amazon and type in uh, the end of faith or the God delusion or what's the name of Hitchens? Um. God is not great on on Amazon they're probably all in the top 1000 books. And weeks ago they were in the top 500. So you got millions of people reading these books that are that are in your face atheistic. So all of that to say the culture that you live in where you function is is got that feel about it and therefore it's going to take courage To stand up and say a man who lived 2,000 years ago is the only way to know God, be rescued from perishing. My last one before I just give you a few tips on courage is um, the Bible itself says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's, It's wisdom and it's power to those who are being saved. But a crucified Messiah... That's a stumbling block and foolishness. So five reasons and there are lots more why you get your work cut out for you. I have my work cut out for me. If we're going to open our mouths in this day, in this park, or at our workplaces, and speak an advocacy for Jesus Christ, it's going to come back at us. So you don't have Bibles, probably, but I have the text written down. So I'm going to go to Matthew 10. If you do have a Bible and you want to look at it, go there with me. Matthew 10. And we're just going to look at one paragraph and uh, five brief incentives that Jesus gives for courage. Okay? Here's the paragraph. I'll read it to you. Matthew 10, 24 to 31. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, that's the devil, how much more will they malign those of his own household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, utter in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the house, on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, now, it's obvious what the main point of that text is, because it's mentioned three times, fear not, fear not, fear not. So that's the main point. And the rest of the text, after the main point of fear not to speak on the housetops, what you've heard from Jesus, everything else is motivation. And that's what I need. I need motivation to be courageous. And there are five motivations in this paragraph, and I'll just give them to you. It won't take more than three or four minutes or two or three minutes with each one. So here they go. Number one, therefore, have no fear of them. So when you read a therefore, you know something has gone before. Therefore, have no fear of them. What went before? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Therefore, have no fear of them. That's a weird argument. If they call the master of the house, Jesus, the devil, how much more will they call those members of his household, you, the devil? Therefore, don't be afraid. I would think it would be, therefore, be afraid. Well, how does that work? I think it works like this. If you are being called the devil because you are lovingly commending Christ, it's evidence you're in the house, you're in the household, you're in the family, you're lining up with Jesus. And what could be more reassuring and encouraging to to know that Jesus is saying you're on my side? I'd rather be on Jesus' side than a million people's side because He's going to win in the end. I think that's the way the argument works. If they called me the devil, and they're calling you the devil. Who are you lining up with? Me. And I win. So be encouraged and don't be afraid. That's reason number one. Number two. It says, So, have no fear of them for... You all know how that works. That's an argument. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Have no fear of them because... Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be made known. How does that argument work? It goes like this. One of the things that makes us fearful is that everybody's going to think we're wrong and they're going to bring forth some arguments that make us look wrong. And Jesus is saying, listen, If you proclaim what I have told you in my book, the whole world might think you're wrong, but what is hidden will one day be revealed. I mean, picture the last day. That blue canopy splits, rolled up like a scroll, and King Jesus with millions of angels. One text says all the angels are coming. Heaven is filled with angels. And these angels are not like little cherubim with wings that go like this in Peter Paul Rubens paintings. No way. These are the kind of beings that when they speak, the temple threshold of heaven shakes. If they open their mouth, we'd fall to the ground. And there's millions of them coming. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to vindicate you. The time you were just laughed to scorn at work. Or at school and they just rolled their eyes and thought you were the most weird right wing religious fanatic they'd ever met in their lives and you went home feeling crushed and like a failure. This king is coming and it will be trumpeted to the whole world. She was right and you were wrong. That moment will be worth everything to you. I think that's what it means. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden. That will not be known. So don't fret too much when what you say is rejected, because it's not rejected by the one that matters, and the whole world will see it one day when it is revealed and written across the skies, those who followed me were right. Incentive number three. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can cast soul and body into hell. So fear God, but don't fear man. Why? (laughs) The way I put it one time, I preached a message on this about 1983. I can still remember it because one of the pastor's wives, her name is Sue, she's not here anymore, took my hand at the door. She was living in the inner city, and her street was tough. And I praise God that they were there. And I preached this message, and my point was from this text. And I I closed the message with, Fear not! You can only be killed! Because that's what it says, doesn't it? It says, um, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. All they can do is kill you. That's what it says. So I ended my sermon on that note, praising God for people who live in the city or take risks, go to hard places. And she took my hand, tears running down her face. She said, I'm scared to death. And I said, well, that's okay. You're living there, so you're overcoming it. And God will help you. So the third incentive is... Death is all that man can do to you in the end. Worst thing they can do is wipe you out on earth. And for Christians, doorway to paradise. I hope I have the courage on that day when somebody's got a gun to my head or whatever, I hope I have the courage to say, make my day. (laughs) I probably won't. (laughs) But I, I dream about it. Don't we all dream about being good martyrs? Not easy. Easy to laugh about now, but... Anybody following the Stellar blog like I am? Stellars are in Cambridge, England. They took a little tour in the last two days with their family, and they went to visit... I forget the place, but in that place, they had a rack. Remember what the rack was 300 years ago? And one of their kids lay down on the rack. So in a rack, your hands are tied with ropes that way. Your feet are tied with ropes that way. And then there's this big ratio of a turning wheel, and they just begin to stretch you. Now, I, I have a bad back. I have a lower back. And I sit down on my study floor, and I put my feet – this is after I've jogged – I put my feet flat against my desk, I put my hands on the, on the floor behind me, and I push my... Instead of doing these kind of bids, I'm sitting. That's what somebody told me to do. Sit to do, to do stretches. So your hamstring is stretched. And I push as hard as I can. And, and sometimes I, I hurt myself pushing. And I just imagine, what if somebody wanted to make me scream as loud as I could scream by Pulling my joints apart, so I, I do not take the suffering that our forefathers have gone through lightly it, and I don 't know what I would do. I just pray that grace would show up for that right now. you probably and I probably feel like I don't have the grace for that I'm not mature enough, deep enough, strong enough for that, but just like uh, Corey Ten Boone said when her when she said to remember that story, she said to her, her dad, daddy i don 't think I 'll be able to stand it if they take us away to the concentration camps and try to get us to deny our faith. And her dad said, when I want to send you to your grandmother's house on the train, Corey, when do I give you the ticket? Three weeks ahead or as you get on the train? She said, as I get on the train. He said, grace will show up when you get on the train. So believe that. God has a grace for every trial and Today's grace is not the grace for tomorrow. Tomorrow's grace is for tomorrow. So the third incentive, there are only two more, is that they can only kill you. Be strong. Be courageous. Number four, they get sweeter now. Those are kind of tough. Like, <laughs> they can only kill you. I say, oh, haven't you got anything sweeter to say? Well, he does. And, and the last two are sweet. Even the hairs of your head are all Numbered why did he say that? He's in a context of courage and speaking boldly, and he says, I can count the hairs on your head. How does that encourage us? Talitha, my eleven year old, got on the bus today at one o'clock to go to fifth and sixth grade camp. Now, Talitha's African American, and we have learned to do hair. Hair's big. Hair's big for everybody, but bigger. Bigger if it's different than your parents. You gotta learn, you gotta think, you gotta work. So doing hair to last a week at camp in your eleven is a big deal. So Noelle knows all about hair. She's learned a lot in eleven years. And and to watch my wife do hair with Talitha is about this text. Now, she doesn't wear braids much anymore. When she was little, we did braids. They were cool. We thought they were really pretty. And uh, it took about three hours to do braids on this hair. And to watch them, I mean, if you had like 50 braids, and, and I just would watch them and said, how in the world do you do that? How do you separate out enough to make that work so you can braid with your fingers? I, just, I was marveled at it. And, and it hit me, okay, she's doing 50. God does every hair separately. God does hair, which simply means, I think, as as intimately as my wife hovered over my little girl sitting on the end of the kitchen bench for three hours, that's the way God hovers over us. On the rack, or talking to somebody in the park, or wherever... To point out that he knows the number of our hairs is simply to point out he's really close. He's really intimate. He's really there for us. Isn't that the point? I mean, why else? Who cares about a hair, right? Who cares if the, if he knows the number? The number doesn't matter. Getting close enough to count them matters, I think that's the point. So the fourth incentive to be courageous is that God is there. He's intimately involved with your conversation and your life. And here's the last one. Um, and it's—I think—the best of all, probably. He says, "You are of more value than many sparrows. Not one of them will fall to the ground without your Father's will." So this is there's an argument here, logic, and then there's sweetness. The logic is no sparrow in the world falls dead out of a tree in the middle of a forest watched by nobody but God. No sparrow falls dead out of a tree apart from God's design and ordination. Premise number one. Premise number two. You are of more value than sparrows. Conclusion. You won't fall out of a tree without God's sovereign design. Nothing will happen to you apart from God's care. God is so in charge of the world, birds do not die apart from His choice. You are a thousand times, ten thousand times more important to God than birds. And therefore, He watches over your life more closely than he does birds and they don't die without his decree you won't die without his decree remember Henry Martin the missionary to the Persians he made that famous line paraphrased I am immortal until God's work for me is done if I die his work for me is done and until then I cannot die That's a great way to live. That's a great courage to have. So, those are my five incentives. Let me just give you the the main point again. We live in a culture where to be forthright and bold and loving about Jesus Christ, Son of God, coming into the world to pay a ransom for sin, to rise again, to offer Himself to anyone who believed as the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by Me. To say that and to explain that to people is simply going to be offensive. It's going to get us in trouble, but there are going to be people everywhere ready to receive that. Let me say one other thing before I quit and pray. I think one of the things that keeps us sometimes from speaking more forthrightly and boldly about Christ is that we have the feeling, I've got to say it all, and I've got to close the deal. It's my job to get the whole gospel out, to answer all the objections, and then to lead them in a significant life-changing prayer and have them in church next Sunday. The whole package after this conversation. And it paralyzes us because we think, number one, there isn't time. It's lunch. We've got to be back to work in 15 minutes. Or a whole other group of reasons. And I just want to relieve you of that. And here's, here's the reason that you should be relieved of that. When we listen to testimonies at baptisms, at Bethlehem, month after month after month, you know how the stories go? So-and-so said to me this when I was six. And then this happened when I was 18. And then this happened. And then this happened. And this happened. And then God got a hold of me at 20 or 25 or whatever. It's always a a series of influences. And I'm saying in God's providence, you will be appointed to be one of those influences. You might happen to be the last one. Which is always wonderful if you can be the person who leads a person straight across the line. But there have been a hundred other people up till that moment who've said things. I remember a girl's testimony who said she's walking down there. She's a, like a 13 year old girl. Here come three big macho guys at, down the, uh, uh, walking down the beach and, and she wanted to be cool and walking by. And these guys said believe in Jesus and kept walking. She said that was the most decisive sentence she ever heard in her life. Those guys didn't have a clue they had just been decisive in saving us all. In fact, we would have probably criticized them and say, you think you're going to do any good doing that? That is a waste of time to say believe in Jesus on the beach and just walk on. I'll tell you, nothing spoken in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, with love for other people, is ever wasted. So just do what you can do. Write the note you can write. Send the email you can send. Make the phone call you can make. Talk to anybody about anything. And if God leads you to more, great. But we're all in this together. Who knows but that the person you talk to today, I might bump into while I'm jogging tomorrow. And they'll think, God must be ganging up on me. He must want me. Because they didn't plan that. Somebody else did. Let's pray. Father, I just long for these friends, these followers of Jesus to be freed from fear and hesitancy and to just open their mouths and be courageous and bold to spend these years of their lives talking to the people you've brought into their lives about the most important things. So I commend them to your grace and ask that you would fill them now with your Holy Spirit and give them good connections with each other here. May they build each other's faith up in small groups. And would you make them fruitful in their witness, I pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen.